1: Welcome, everyone. I'm Joe Butterfield, and I'm both an instructor and the Human Rights Certificate Advisor at the University of Iowa Center for Human Rights. I also teach courses in the History of Human Rights and U.S. Foreign Relations, the Cold War, and the World Since 1945 for the UI Department of History. This episode is part of the University of Iowa's Center for Human Rights contributions to the New Book Network's Human Rights Collection. Our center, part of the University of Iowa College of Law, teaches the University of Iowa's undergraduate certificate in human rights, and engages in a broad range of scholarship and programming. We invite you to learn more about the center and our work by visiting uichr.uiowa.edu. Today, I'll be chatting with Dr. Vanessa Walker about her book, Principles in Power, Latin America and the Politics of U.S. Human Rights Diplomacy, published by Cornell University Press, in 2020. Vanessa Walker is the Gordon Levin Associate Professor of Diplomatic History at Amherst College, where she teaches classes on U.S. politics, foreign relations, and human rights. In addition to Principles in Power, she is also the author of several articles on the Carter administration's human rights policy. Vanessa received a Ph.D. in U.S. International history from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and is the recipient of several awards, including a graduate fellowship at the Miller Center for Public Affairs at the University of Virginia, the Gerald R. Ford Scholar in honor of Robert Teeter at the Ford Presidential Library, a George Mosse Fellowship at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and Hebrew University of Jerusalem, as well as the Staten Foundation Applied History Fellowship. Welcome, Vanessa. Thanks, Joe. It's nice to be here. Well, wonderful. You know, I've been thinking about your book, and you know, oftentimes what we initially imagine when we set out on a project and what we ultimately produce can be two very different things. Can you tell us a little bit about the genesis and trajectory of the book?
0: hmm Yeah, so I... um had originally started um, this project with kind of a pretty traditional focus on the Carter administration's human rights policy. It was something I had worked on uh, as an undergraduate with my advisor, David Schmitz at Whitman College. Um, And so I wanted to continue with that work in graduate school And so I kind of took a pretty traditional diplomatic history approach initially. I was looking at government memoranda, state department cables, presidential policy statements, Um, but as I filtered through those materials, I kept finding references to reports from various human rights groups, summaries of conversations with advocates, um, including Latin American activists, um, memos about how to deal with congressional pressure on these issues, Um, And this wasn't just the more established groups that we might think about today, like Amnesty International, which, frankly, itself was pretty young at that time, but also really small operations and grassroots networks were showing up in really high level diplomatic chatter and conversation. So let me, let me give you one example. The Washington Office on Latin America, which is a group I discuss a lot in my book, is this tiny group. It's founded on a shoestring in 1974 to promote human rights in U.S.-Latin American relations. And it was very critical of U.S. Cold War policies and particularly the role of the United States in the Chilean coup that had brought Augusto Pinochet to power in 1973. So, this is a really tiny operation at the time with a very small handful of dedicated people, um, but they had a lot of good contacts in Latin America who were channeling information to them um, that was being suppressed by official government media in Chile and Latin America. Um, And they're really not on the radar in the United States. So, they start this newsletter in 1975, tracking congressional action related to Latin America and reporting on U.S. policies. And they start circulating this on the Hill um, to contacts they had cultivated in lower levels of the State Department. And within a year, this newsletter, which is literally being typed out on typewriters initially, is... Um, is being included in State Department memoranda with commentary in the margins and it's going all the way up to the Assistant Secretary of State in his regular briefings, um, particularly before he would be scheduled to testify with Congress on Latin American policy. So one State Department staffer told the Assistant Secretary of State that he knows he has too much to read, But he's going to circulate this newsletter from now on and mark items that would be of possible interest to him. Um, And he warned him also that the human rights advocates would, uh, what he said, zero in on upcoming congressional testimony on human rights, implying that the Assistant Secretary of State really should be prepared and target his testimony to these groups as well as Congress. And so for me, this kind of Level of um of impact these very small groups were having on internal policy conversations um, and relationships um, is kind of like a positive version of those conspiracy theories and films where you have all these dots and threads connecting pieces all over this huge board, and uh, so this is kind of my equivalent and a really direct way we can see non-government actors shaping foreign policy thinking. Um, including grassroots Latin American actors themselves coming into really the center of the policymaking process. So what really kind of moved my research into tracing these groups, their motivations and visions and how that worked together with really high level um, U.S. policy and politics in really important ways.
1: Yeah. Well, great. You know, and one of the things the book does so well is to show that synergy between non-governmental organizations and Congress, so can you now tell us, where does the title Principles in
0: Power come from? Sure. So um, one, you know, as academics, we usually have very unwieldy titles. I can't even remember what the title originally was, but my publisher is very clear that that was not going to work. So we need something pithy. Um, and so Principles in Power, I think, really kind of lands on this central idea that when people talk about human rights foreign policy, it's often kind of... A bifurcated response. It's either dismissed as this kind of hopelessly ideal, uh, idealistic naivete that's at odds with you know, quote unquote, real interests like security or economic growth. Or conversely, it's treated as kind of a cynical power play and a fig leaf for intervention. And in both of these approaches, ideals and interests are treated kind of as a binary, inherently a part or opposed to one another. Um, but what I found looking at the 1970s was that various actors in government and out um, we're attempting to advance human rights as part of a reimagination of what constitutes U.S. interests, particularly after the failures in Vietnam um, and kind of this late Cold War dissatisfaction with U.S. international power. And so a lot of the actors that I'm interested in this book are really trying to find a way to recalibrate U.S. international power to better reflect the democratic values that Americans so often celebrate, Um and also how to be more effective um, as well as humane um, in the exercise of power in the international community in meeting U.S. interests. So this idea of principles in power kind of brings these two concepts together. Um, it's also a bit of a nerdy play on words. Carter's National Security Advisor, uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski, um, his autobiography was called Power and Principle. So I have a little bit of, you know, nerdy callback there.
1: Oh, OK. Mm hmm. so the subtitle of the book is Latin America and the Politics of U.S. Human Rights Diplomacy and in the book you argue that Latin America is the core not the periphery when it comes to understanding U.S. human rights policy and the debate surrounding it so first can you tell us why is this so and then if you could talk a little bit about why you chose to focus on Chile and Argentina.
0: Sure. So I think Latin America and looking at Latin America is really essential for revealing kind of what I see as somewhat unique to this um, time period in U.S. approaches to human rights in the 1970s, particularly under Carter, but in a pattern that started before him, which is this kind of anti-interventionist and self-critical ethos that underpinned a lot of the policies that were being generated during this time. Um, And that comes from the fact that U.S. policies are deeply implicated in the human rights violations perpetrated by many of Latin America's governments, right? This entanglement of U.S. policy and human rights abuses because of the close allyship um, rationalized through Cold War security interests really makes U.S. policy um, a part of the power that allows these regimes to abuse their own citizens um, and and rationalize that. And you see that in Latin America in ways that you don't see, um, say, in East-West relations where the United States um, has been very free to criticize the Soviet Union's um, human rights abuses. So I think what's important about Latin America in this moment is that you have this new human rights advocacy targeting Latin America in the 1970s. It's seeking to kind of um, mitigate foreign abuses, but it's also challenging these Cold War relationships between the United States and right-wing regimes um, and kind of getting at the core of really rethinking the underlying assumptions about Cold War security and policy. Um, And so the U.S. relations with the military governments in both Chile and Argentina, I think, really epitomize this dynamic, right? They're, They're certainly unique in their own ways as our, as each country is right. There are a lot of diverse experiences in Latin America and relations between the United States and different Latin American governments, but both Chile and Argentina, um, receive a disproportionate amount of attention from advocates and from the U.S. government, particularly under the Carter years. Um, And they strongly influence the contours of the policies that take shape in this time. So they have an impact, an outsized impact on other countries as well. So the Chilean coup in 1973 is a really crucial catalyst, I think, for the emerging human rights movement, uh, and it brings together a criticism, again, this criticism of U.S. Cold War foreign policy with challenges to presidential power domestically, right? So some of this is seen as the um, excesses of the Cold War presidency. Um, and I think Argentina is an interesting case because it's in a lot of ways regarded as one of Carter's more successful um, Cases of implementing his administration's human rights policy. But even in this success story, you see a lot of tensions. You see um, the limits of what even a dedicated focus on a human rights policy can accomplish. Um, in this environment. And so I think what you see when you look at Chile and Argentina is that the dilemmas faced by um, the administration and advocates in implementing human rights policy in Chile and Argentina reflect other high profile cases. So, you know, these tensions between engagement versus dissociation about the limits of the US government to influence. Um, The internal practices of another government, um, the legacies of U.S. intervention in Latin America and beyond. and, of course, congr- entrenched congressional opinion and other competing interests in these areas. So um, so that's really why I think Latin America um, has kind of a, is a really important place to look to understand these dynamics.
1: Yeah. And maybe because the focus is Chile and Argentina, the time frame kind of makes sense. But could you tell us, um, just confirm how you settled on the time span between 1973 and 1982.
0: Yeah. So, you know, again, I started off thinking uh, I was going to talk primarily about the Carter administration, you know, so 77 to, to 1980. But of course, human rights is not Carter's creation. Um, there was a lot of momentum and important groundwork that happened in the years immediately prior to his election that he really builds on and amplifies and that decisively shape ultimately what he's able to do and how he does it. Um, so I wanted a time frame that encompassed and analyzed those really critical precursors And again, the Chilean coup was kind of a natural starting point. And again, I see Chile, I think I use the term catalyst um, rather than genesis, for example, because these these are not new dynamics, but Chile really helps to galvanize it in important new ways um, and bring it into kind of the American public's imagination, I think, in, in ways. So 1973 becomes a starting point for that. And then, you know, I could have stopped at the end of the Carter administration, but I actually, I think, you know part of what I wanted to do with this book is see how um, what is sustained across different administrations, particularly three very different administrations. I mean, Ford, Carter, Reagan are really different presidencies. Um, And so see, you know, during these formative years, how is human rights um, imagined, implemented, what changes from administration to administration and what doesn't, right? So I think one of the interesting things is Reagan, comes up with a policy that's almost diametrically opposed in its uh, view of human rights from Carter's about what the purpose of the policy is, how it should be implemented. Um, He really transforms the meaning and application of human rights policy quite abruptly upon taking office. At the same time, he faces a lot of the exact same issues and challenges that Carter and also Ford confronted. So I think looking at it across this period, across these three very different presidencies, um, you see what is, um, some I think, what is unique in a lot of ways to the Carter years um, and how the government approached that. But you also see the continuities um, that mark human rights diplomacy, um, despite the individual kind of ideologies and proclivities. So the kind of informal collaboration between government and non-government actors, a self-critical reassessment of U.S. foreign policy norms that happens for advocates that kind of carries through um, power struggles with Congress, um, questions about double standards, right? All of these are things that each of these presidencies ends up grappling with. Um, And I stopped in 82 because, you know, one, space. Um, You run out of space. And ultimately, I mean, Reagan's policy does continue to evolve uh, evolve at that time, but I think you at least got a sense of um, some of these longer-term dynamics and trends.
1: Hmm. So there's a lot of historiography on the emergence of a vibrant human rights movement in the 1970s, and it has focused on a variety of factors, including failed utopias, transnational connections, congressional interests, collective guilt over and protest movements motivated by both Vietnam and racial injustice, as well as the Carter presidency. Your work builds on this by incorporating the idea of the politics of complicity. Can you explain what you mean by the politics of complicity and why you argue it matters?
0: Yeah. So, I'm probably going to age myself here a little bit. Um, so when I started working on this project at the beginning of my graduate career, it coincided with the United States launching wars in Ar- Afghanistan, in Iraq. Um, and, and so in that moment, human rights became in a lot of ways synonymous with military intervention, with correcting, quote unquote, the bad behavior of other regimes abroad with force if necessary. And so the contemporary conversations as I was starting to embark on this project really centered around human rights and US military power and regime change or about human rights serving as an ideological cover for other interests. And it really struck me that this didn't reflect the dynamics I was seeing in the 1970s where advocates were championing human rights as a remedy to the military interventionism and regime change that had marked U.S. Cold War policies in places like Vietnam, um, but also Chile and Latin America more broadly. And so I found it really um Interesting that rather than this kind of triumphalist sentiment about American superiority and power, many of these actors viewed human rights through a very self-critical lens about the cost of American power and Cold War policies. And so they kind of one of the things that really brings um, a lot of the actors in my book together, despite some very different um, approaches or or worldviews is that they kind of share the belief that if you're serious about human rights um, and creating more humane conditions for people all over the world, you have to start by reforming U.S. government and its foreign policy mechanisms. And so my book explored human rights as a self critical policy to address the failings of the Cold War um, for both domestic and international power. For a lot of these actors, there's a nexus here about kind of the Watergate type mentality um, in the failings of the Cold War, right? This kind of overpowerful government um, that's not answerable to its own people. These things are deeply connected. Um, And so the actors I look at in my book, who I titled The Movement, um, to kind of give them a collective identity, and I think ultimately the Carter administration, um, are really defined by their belief that curtailing human rights abuses abroad requires the reform of U.S. government's interventionist policies that supported repressive regimes in the name of Cold War security relationships. And so this emphasis on U.S. complicity in foreign relations or in foreign um, kind of repression led to a strategy of reforming U.S. policy as a means to improve human rights globally. So this politics of complicity is a sense of responsibility for foreign abuses that stems from the root of the United States' own policies and and actions in the international system. Yeah. It's really interesting
1: how you were able to pull all of this together. I found it fascinating, and I added the idea of the politics of complicity to the unit on the 1970s in the human rights course I taught this last spring. But, you know, there are other historical works on the 1970s that have instead looked at Soviet restrictions on Jewish migration, the so-called diploma tax. And the work of folks like the Washington Center, Senator Henry Scoop Jackson and efforts to force changes in Soviet policy regarding migration, even as the Nixon administration was committed to the policy of detente with the Soviet Union you argue that this human rights work was fundamentally different than the efforts of the movement as you label them. Can you explain the key differences? I'm interested in having you elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I think, I think, the way I have viewed human rights, and again, this isn't for all actors. Scoop Jackson has his own um, kind of vision and paradigm for human rights. But again, getting back to that idea of politics of complicity, uh, it's very different to criticize the abuses of a foreign government that you've been engaged in a two to three decades long global conflict with and, and denounce them as immoral, which, again, there's no de- denying the Soviet Union had massive human rights abuses. That's not um, ill-founded criticism. Um But I think you if you think about, again, this idea of the politics of complicity, where is the United States um, policies and behaviors most responsible? Where does it have the most direct sense of responsibility for um, abuses? you have to look at what the United States allies are doing. right? So there's a difference in um, the human rights work that takes place within a Cold War framework, within a moral framework that's been uh, established by this global conflict since the end of World War II, and one that really reassesses the costs of the Cold War alliances and security relationships. And so I really see human rights under Carter as kind of a broader reassessment of these Cold War security paradigms, which diminishes in a lot of ways the centrality of the Soviet Union and its strategic thinking. I'm not saying Carter wasn't worried about the Soviet Union, um, but there was definitely less of a proclivity to um, say that every... um, social instability or conflict in Latin America was a direct product of Soviet intervention. Um, And so East-West relations are certainly important to the Carter administration and certainly important to the development of human rights with your work like Scoop Jackson um, and the work on Soviet Jewry really establishes some important precedents. But you also have to look, the Carter administration didn't expect that its human rights policies would... um, give way to substantial improvements in the Soviet Union's practices, right? Human rights problems within communist sphere were a serious concern, but there weren't a lot of levers for the United States to deploy in the way that you had with your own allies. So the primary instruments formulated by Congress in the mid 1970s and implemented in bilateral relations, particularly restrictions on foreign aid, international financial institutions, State Department country reports, These all overwhelmingly targeted U.S. government's alignment with and support for U.S. Cold War allies. And so unlike violations in the Soviet sphere, U.S. advocates um, and again, Carter administration officials often viewed human rights abuses in Chile and other Cold War allies as a product of kind of uh, U.S. policies and dysfunctional U.S. policies resulting from these kind of assumptions about security um, grounded in this Cold War conflict. Um, so that's I think you know, those those are some of the fundamental differences. And it has, again, it's this about this kind of self-reflective element, the self-critical element of U.S. policies versus externalizing abuses as something happening by other governments over there that the U.S. actually has to fix but isn't responsible for.
1: Yeah. And, and while you just mentioned some of that congressional legislation, I'd like to flush that out a little bit. You argue that the Chilean 9-11 coup in 1973 that overthrew the democratically elected socialist government of Salvador Allende served as a catalyst for some of this legislation. Can you talk about what you think the most lasting impacts of that legislation are?
0: Yeah. So, again, I think there were Chile brings together a lot of. um ideas and um, efforts that had kind of been more diffused but had been tried out, things like linking foreign aid, US foreign aid to human rights practices, these kind of very close collaborations between non-government actors and Congress, right? Those, Chile was not the first time those things existed, but I think it really gave momentum to more diffused efforts that were happening. Um, And so I think ultimately, you know, in the wake of the Chilean coup, and again, because of this kind of, The prominence that that Chile had um, in the public imagination before the coup for a lot of leftists um, and internationally and the revelations that later come about U.S. um, direct involvement um, in the lead up to the coup and destabilization efforts that come out through the church committee. um, These really help to solidify a a very direct connection between U.S. um, aid and policies and foreign repression. Um, And I think this then codifies partnerships between groups. Congress um, has uh, developed really strong working relationships, not just with Chilean activists, but with a lot of these new groups that are taking shape at this time. So it becomes kind of a vanguard of how a lot of these working dynamics um, develop in Washington. Uh, The use of information politics, um, the use of country reports um, to kind of hold governments accountable for their practices And initially, country reports are only done on countries that receive U.S. aid. Right. So, again, that by by definition is a self-selecting group. You're not going to have country reports on communist sphere governments. Initially, that changes later. Um, But you have these country reports that are required to be produced by the State Department through congressional legislation that details um, the human rights practices of various foreign governments that were receiving U.S. aid, both military and economic um, and later international financial institutions. And those reports are often building off the work of non-government actors um, and non-government groups like Amnesty International. And they also provide a very important platform then when the State Department, say under the Ford administration, wants to um, kind of play down some of the abuses because of concerns about security interests. Non-government groups take those country reports and say, look, the the State Department is really downplaying the number of people who are being disappeared, the reports of torture. We have our own reports that are credible. um, And here they are. And so it kind of gave up an annual reckoning um, and and really amplified the voices of these um, grassroots activists both inside government, because you had the State Department and Congress relying on their reporting, but also gave them a very public stage when these reports were ultimately um, released by the State Department.
1: Yeah, and I, I think shadow reporting continues to play really important roles. So one of the things I found fascinating about the book is how you address the seeming contradictions of Carter's Latin America human rights policy. So can we flesh that out a little bit? Well, there have historically been tensions between the protection of international human rights norms and the prerogatives of sovereignty. Carter's policy sought to promote human rights and demonstrate greater respect for sovereignty, which, you know, given the history of U.S. intervention, was particularly interesting. Can you talk about how this contradiction both helped and hindered the implementation of Carter's human rights policy?
0: Yeah, I think one of the things that's really striking, looking at the early years of the Carter administration, the internal documents and conversations that are going on, around what this policy would look like, how would you implement it, is this real um, attentiveness um, in the State Department and the National Security Council to the history of U.S. intervention in Latin America. You see them talking about it a lot and very explicitly, um, that any policy, a human rights policy that was too forceful, too direct, um, was likely to provoke a lot of um, resistance from Latin American actors, both government but also um, civilian actors, um, given the United States' very heavy hand in the region traditionally, and particularly in the 20th century. Um, so there was an awareness that you know human rights couldn't just be a, a bludgeon or the United States moralizing and telling Latin Americans how to behave. Latin Americans were very used to that. Um, that would be unwelcome. Um, and so you see a real sensitivity to this. Um, and I think I thought that was was striking and important because it also then directed the administration to a much more kind of collaborative um, relationship with a lot of these activist networks of trying to amplify um, the work being done within these countries themselves rather than the United States um, imposing uh, from the outside But it also had to be subtle. Right. So you have to you don't want to just grandstand or stand up and wag your finger at people in general. That's probably a fairly ineffective policy. But at times you do need to make those statements. Right. So you don't want a super coercive policy, but you also want to show that you're serious about your human rights policy. Right. Particularly given the resistance um, that that. Congress and activists had seen under the Ford um, Kissinger um, years, right, where human rights got a lot of lip service ultimately in the end, but you could really see a lot of resistance behind the scenes. And so you have this kind of duality. On the one hand, you want to have a human rights policy that um, supports sovereignty, that is not interventionist, um, that is um, respectful and helps to support grassroots movements and doesn't kind of provoke backlash um, against U.S. Thing. But you also have to then prove you're serious about human rights, which was not taken as a given that human rights was more than just rhetoric and sounding good, that it was actually being implemented in policy. And, uh, and for the U.S. domestic audience, people were who are invested in human rights were very skeptical. Um, Even with Carter's kind of early rhetorical adoption of human rights, they're very skeptical that he actually was gonna do anything meaningful. Um, Again, given the kind of these longer term trends and what they had experienced previously and their skepticism about executive power at this point in, in the country's history. So they want something visible, um, and so which is really at the odds with the desire to kind of a support from behind the scenes and give Latin American actors the lead to avoid backlash. So this really creates some um, difficult dynamics. And I think the Carter administration often erred on the side of less intervention and less overt advocacy, but that also then leads to a lot of disillusionment um, and pushback from Congress who wants more vigorous policies and advocates who feel like um, it's kind of just that double talk that they had gotten before and had seen before. Um, So you see this, you know, Eduardo Fry comes, um, who's the former president of Chile um, and one of the kind of leaders of uh, the resistance to Pinochet. And he's seen as a moderate. He comes to the white house in 1977 for a visit. um, And he meets with Brzezinski and others. And he tells them, he's like, you know, human rights policy is great. We, We love what you're doing. You should definitely keep that up, but please don't intervene too directly. We don't, need, certainly we don't need military force. Uh, what we really need is, you know, the empowering of people on the ground, right? So there's always this kind of dance about how to do that. Um, and the the fear that an overly punitive policy would lead to, um, nationalist backlash and actually shore up the support domestically of, of a lot of these repressive regimes.
1: Yeah, and that tension itself is really interesting because you think that folks like Donald Frazier and Tom Harkin would be natural allies of the Carter presidency, but there are tensions there too, right? Can you talk a little bit about that, you know, not just standard infighting between the branches of government, but uh, how some of those likely allies uh, had complicated relationships.
0: Sure. Yeah, and I mean, I think this is this is natural just because people agree on human rights being a central part of US foreign policy doesn't mean they agree on what those priorities are vis-a-vis other issues about how you should approach it and go about it. Right? Advocates are going to want a much more robust policy whereas career diplomats are going to have a more temperate approach. They're going to see a larger array of issues that have to be balanced in front of them. Um and I think, you know, there are one, I think some of these tensions, again, come from this longer history. And part of the reason it was important to start my book in 1973 or before the Carter administration is there is a, is a residual um, and pretty entrenched distrust of the executive branch by Congress and advocates that come from those prior years of, of congressional legislation mandating certain human rights um, actions like linking military aid to these country reports and Kissinger's State Department doing as much as it can to really get around these congressional mandates. Right. And so you already have that skepticism of the executive um, and kind of dynamic in place when Carter comes in. And this is really I mean, this is something you see the Carter administration really tackling pretty directly and, and trying to figure out how how to deal with congressional distrust um but there's also you know there's a larger struggle going on here about who has the prerogative to make foreign policy right our constitution the united states is pretty ambivalent about where certain powers rest for things, and there's a constant push-pull. And this is a moment of heightened congressional activism, of of distrust of executive power um, and executive discretion in foreign policy. And so a lot of these human rights laws are really ways to chip away Pretty directly at executive prerogatives in foreign policy making that's not left up to the discretion of the president. Um, And, you know, a president is naturally going to push back on that. Carter does not want to give up his presidential prerogatives um, or um, cede to Congress his flexibility and ability to decide on a case by case basis um, what would be the best kind of approach and remedy to human rights in each moment. Um, There's a pretty natural territorialism that comes when people are trying to figure out where the where the brokers of power are going to sit. Um, and so this is really a high point of congressional activism, um, a high point of distrust and executive um, discretion. Um, and so that definitely plays in here. And human rights is very much mobilized in those questions about the Cold War presidency, the excesses of of power. Um, And in a lot of ways, this, you know, human rights legislation is very directly targeted at curtailing presidential power. Um, And so you see that, you see quiet diplomacy, which again, given the history of interventionism, Carter is doing a lot behind the scenes um, quietly, but there's no big public fanfare for, for that. So if he says, no, no, we're raising it, don't worry, we're raising it behind the scenes, Why would Frazier and and Kennedy and and activists outside of um, the White House believe that after several years of being told the same thing by Kissinger, who's actually saying, just hurry up and, and, and do it quickly so we don't have to deal with the PR mess, right? So a lot of the kind of approaches that Carter wants to take because of this sensitivity to interventionism are very reminiscent of the ways that human rights was really dismissed and kind of downplayed um, by the previous administration. Yeah, I think
1: Kissinger at one point said he's allergic to congressional mandates, right? Yeah. Um,
0: but Carter is
1: doing work behind the scenes. And I think Catherine Sakink's work, Mixed Signals, was one of the first to offer us some quantitative evidence that the pressures placed on the Pinochet government uh, and also in Argentina um during Carter's presidency actually mattered that the number and severity of human rights abuses declined would you say your findings confirm challenge or complicate that narrative
0: yeah so Catherine's Sikinks work has been, you know, very influential for me. Also, her earlier work, Activists Beyond Borders, was, you know, one of the first that really helped me think through these dynamics and relationships about how transnational activist networks work, and um, so, you know to me as a young graduate student, her work was, was really important. And she, of course, herself was part of what I've dubbed the movement. She worked on with WOLA on several of these campaigns. She shows up in my book, not as a a scholar, but as a young activist um, advocating for Argentina um, in the 19, in 1979, I believe it is. So, you know, she's part of this and she's embedded and she's brought so much, um, uh, such a great eye to the importance of these actors and these non-government actors and these issues in Washington she really has like an insiders view of it. So I think I think in a lot of ways my work confirms and and deepens and maybe complicates a bit some of her findings. I think my focus more, you know, mixed signals covers a number of administrations in a lot more countries. So she has to kind of move through things more quickly. So I was able to go into greater depth on the relations between Carter and Congress and advocates um, and explore in greater detail the decision-making processes and competing pressures within the administration. Um, and so I think I, I give a bit more emphasis to some of the structural challenges that Carter faced um, that kind of curtailed some of his advocacy. Um, but I think, yeah, I think it, it hopefully amplifies amplifies the you know the work that her her book laid a foundation for So I became
1: introduced to your work by reading um, an article called Jimmy Carter and the foreign policy of human rights. It was one you co authored with David Schmitz, published in Diplomatic History. Um, And that article was one of the early historical efforts to prompt a reconsideration of Carter's presidency in relation to his human rights policy which had been characterized as largely naive or inept. Um, Obviously, Principles in Power um, looks at the human rights policy in greater detail. And how do you see it contributing to the larger conversation about Carter's presidency and the legacy of it?
0: Yeah. Um, So, I mean, this my work very directly builds off of that. So that's where my interest in these topics started, um, was working with David um, on his book on right wing dictatorships. um, And also then my uh, my senior thesis as a as a presumptuous uh, student undergrad at at Whitman College. Um, So we worked together on those and the article kind of came out of that that work. and so I think a lot of the themes are still there, right? Where does the Cold War and, and human rights intersect under Carter? And you know, we argued um, it was a post Cold, the first post Cold War foreign policy. I think was the subtitle in that. Um, and I still see human rights as, as I've said before, I see. The way that Carter conceptualized human rights was a attempt to move beyond uh, kind of this bipolar worldview to think about um, American power in um, different ways, particularly post Vietnam. Um, to really kind of um, rethink the centrality of the conflict with the Soviet Union um, for framing all U.S. strategic interests um, and bilateral relations. Um, So I think this this book definitely continues with a lot of those themes. Um, I think it looks at the limits of presidential power, right, an an agency over their own presidencies. Um, You know, this is just one small piece of a very complex and messy time in U.S. history, right? So the whole... Um, rethinking and kind of perhaps crumbling, but still very strong and in some ways resurgent Cold War mentality was something Carter had to grapple with throughout his presidency. Um, I think my book also is, is doing some work that other scholars of human rights have been doing and um, bringing that into the Carter years, which is really the importance of Congress in foreign policy. I think traditionally, you um, U.S. foreign relations history, kind of traditional diplomatic history, has been very focused on presidencies, administrations. Um, and Congress is a really important player, um, not just holding the purse strings, but also in, in moving the frameworks and framing policy options. Um, you know, in, in Atlantic Crossings, there's a really great quote um, You know, totally different time period, but it talks about um, Roger Daniels talks about that political process is broader than just outcomes that you have to ask how issues get into the political stream itself and how problems are defined and issues are framed. And I think that is part of what I really want to do with this book. It's about Carter, but it's also about how do we think more broadly about a policy process? How do people outside of government frame issues and how do they bring those into conversations? Um, and Congress is also a really important piece of that. Um, and so, again, I think the human rights literature works like Sarah Snyder's great works um, have really helped to bring. Congress more directly into this array, it's not just happening at the State Department, and it's not just bickering between the State Department and the National Security uh, Council, right? That there are really important actors in government that are not in the executive, that have um, a seat at the table and really decisively frame the policies and their outcomes. Um, So uh, I think that I'm also contributing to that. I think the final thing, and again, this is something that's hinted at in that article, is there's a lot of questions about whether or not Carter abandoned human rights um in the latter half of his presidency uh whether he became a cold warrior again um and again i think when you look at latin america you could answer that question differently when you look at different areas but um Carter, in in this work, did not, to my mind, and to the evidence I saw, abandon human rights. It became quieter, right? It was over. Carter was overwhelmed by the end of his uh, presidency with a number of crises that necessarily took front seat, right? Um, but human rights and, and kind of the basic assumptions about human rights stayed on, right? They were still there. You didn't suddenly see, um, you know, the conversations around. Argentina in 1980, even with the need to um, get them on board with the Soviet grain embargo, you didn't see human rights just being dropped in those conversations. It, it still stayed fairly central. And so just because it's less public doesn't mean it went away. Um, and I think, again, looking below the surface, you know, a lot of the Carter historiography when we wrote that article in 2004 was based on public perceptions because the declassification of internal documents hadn't really arrived to inform the literature at that point. And obviously it has now and people are still arguing over this. Um, But what I see in there is that, you know, that there is a um, human rights becomes less visible, but it doesn't go away. Um, And it doesn't just get jettisoned in the face of new security demands and and really acute crises um, around the world.
1: Yeah, I had an Mentor one time talk about Carter as being the most luckless president, you know, with the trifecta of the Soviet invasion and Nicaragua. Um, so your chat, the book largely focuses on the Carter presidency. That's the heaviest um, in the volume, and it really reinforces that the human rights-based foreign policy is a seismic shift. Uh, in the White House. And one way is the incorporation of economic and social rights, right? The traditional focus had been civil and political rights, very much shaped by the Cold War paradigm, But your chapter on Reagan highlights not just a turn away from economic and social rights. I think Jean Kirkpatrick calls them a letter to Santa Claus in one of her works Um, and a focus on civil and political rights again, but one where you argue that they redefine human rights as human freedom Um, and focus, again, principally on communist regimes. And so, you know, U.S. foreign policy has an impact on the ground. So how do you see that shift affecting how others experience U.S. foreign policy?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think, you know, Carter's vision of... um, Economic and social rights never got the same attention or prominence um, that the focus on um, civil and political rights of bodily integrity got. And I think that's true well beyond Carter. Right. These are rights that are, I think, easier to agree on for particularly people in the United States, um, but globally. Um, and so you definitely do see um, a shift, though. You see Carter trying to grapple with it. You see a lot of, um, you know, his first address to the United Nations, where he talks about human rights. It's really centered on, you know, food security and water, and uh, and how those are human rights issues, right? That, for uh, that, and also in trying to um, reach out to the developing world and Latin America, that there, there's a lot of attention given to the fact that they care a lot more about economic and social rights than political rights are not more, but they're, they're urgent, right? These are urgent rights for people. um, and they, they care about those. So I think you see those kind of, um, those dropping out of the conversation, um, with the Reagan administration, but what you also have then is kind of a fundamental, again, this idea of a self-reflective self-critical vision of restraint, of restraining, um, U S, um, power, of checks on military sales, um, that the Cold War can't rationalize supporting dictators um, and U.S. support shouldn't go towards repressing civilian populations. Um, Whereas Reagan's logic was if communism is the greatest threat to human rights, this linkage between human rights abuses by governments and military arms don't make sense because there are inherently fighting off communist insurgents. And so you have to do whatever you can to um, to defeat them. And so then arming these governments actually becomes a human rights policy, right? So if you see communism as the largest threat to, um, to human rights globally, then the Cold War security vision and paradigm is justified on a human rights basis, right? So that reframing, um, and that leads them to not only not limit arms sales to governments, but also to recast military aid as a critical aspect of both hemispheric defense against communism and advancement of human rights. Um, And so you have here, I think, you know, again, this is what I think is so interesting about bringing Reagan into this conversation is you really see this kind of restraint and self-critical vision of human rights Versus a very triumphalist return to kind of Cold War moralism uh, as human rights, um, and I think there's an appeal to that. It's a, its nobody likes self-flagellation, um, and I think Reagan—it's an easier sell in a lot of ways, and it's familiar to people, right? The Cold War kind of morals and and kind of worldview still has resonance with a lot of people. It's very familiar, um, and it makes America kind of strong and kicking butt again and it feels good, you know? And so I think as opposed to kind of, well, what did we do wrong? Um, You know, self-reflection only feels good for so long to people. And I think that's a big piece of what happens um, in the 1980s.
1: So there are a lot of historical lessons in your book. Um, And there are, I think, two really persistent ongoing debates that you address really effectively And one is that there's, you mentioned this at the beginning, this dichotomy between pursuing national interests and one grounded in human rights. Um, The other is this idea about, you know, dealing with dictators or regimes that abuse human rights. Do you positively engage them? To try to force change or, you know, do you impose punitive sanctions as part of a larger process of disassociation, right? Um, So I'm wondering if you can address those, this maybe false dichotomy. um, And how do you see, what kind of lessons about carrots and sticks do you, can you draw from your work?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the things I still grapple with after looking at this because what I feel like I really found um, was not answers, but just like these really entrenched dilemmas around how do you advance human rights. Um, And, you know, on the one hand, you know, you want to use the levers that are available to you, um, you know, through dissociation. Um, Nobody wants to be allied closely with a repressive regime. Um, You don't want to materially support repression, certainly. Um, but at the same time, what are the what are the elements that actually, in you know, what are the policies that actually uh, help to precipitate change and p- actual positive, positive, tangible uh, improvements in human rights for people? Um, and a lot of times that takes working with really um, ugly regimes. Um, and so if you set up a, a dynamic in which no matter what a repressive government does—you're still going to be punitive. They have very little incentive to change their practices, right? So, for for Pinochet, particularly if your goal is regime change in the long run, why? What incentive does that government have to to cooperate to make modest changes um, and improvements? If your ultimate goal is to unseat them from power, right? There's no self-interest there for a regime, um, so. You know, the, But to continue to work closely with repressive regimes really undermines your credibility about um, your position on human rights and certain behaviors um, and policies as intolerable, right? And so I think there's a very unsatisfying, um, perhaps, lesson from this that it depends, right? It's a very particularist um I guess uh conclusion that I've drawn that it really depends on the specific circumstances. As a historian, I think the history um of the relations between the two countries matter, um, the individuals involved and what they're, you know, what are the limits of that they're willing to do, right? So, you know, with Argentina you get to this point, for example, around the question of disappeared people, right? This is like the symbol of Argentine abuse is the number of disappeared people that were never accounted for by the government, that the government, you know, inability to take responsibility for their, their disappearance. Um, and this is really a, this is the symbolic issue for the international community, for families in Argentina is an accounting for these people and the Argentine government, the junta, they can't do it right. Like to do that would be suicide. For them, you know, it would be it would be the end of their regime and power to actually have a public accounting. So, no matter what the United States pushes for the the junta, that is something they they cannot do in their minds because that would mean the just kind of fundamental collapse of their power. Um, but for the United States to back away from pressuring them on that would also mean walking away from the most predominant international symbol of human rights abuses. And the number one issue that the Argentine families want resolution on. So it's kind of a no win situation. You can't, you don't actually expect to get the Argentine government to give up any sort of accountability any more than you expected Pinochet to deliver um, the people responsible for the Orlando Letelier assassination, because to do that would be to um, undermine your own power. So when you hit those things, you're really in a stuck spot as a as U.S. officials because you can't back away and be credible and you don't really expect to get any traction. So how much, you know, kind of political currency do you spend on these issues um, that you probably won't be able. To... And so this is why that idea of limits, I think, is so important and kind of understanding both for diplomats, but also for advocates, you know, what are the limits of what the U.S. government can actually accomplish through its human rights policy? It can accomplish a lot. But there's certain things that no matter how many sanctions the U.S. imposes, um, it's not going to get that. They're not going to be able to to leverage their power in order to get certain outcomes.
1: And kind of sitting with
0: that discomfort is really yeah,
1: hard. I think it's so, so interesting because, you know, the solutions are always so particularist but what the public wants to consume is absolutist language, right? And creating that disconnect. So, well, we're getting close to the end.
0: Yeah, I think there's a real tension between the universalist rhetoric of human rights as absolute and the realities of the limits of power, of policymaking, of of the world we live in, right? And it's, I think, those gaps between... That absolutist universal language um, and the lived realities um, are, are lead to a lot of cynicism about human rights, lead to a lot of dissatisfaction with any human rights campaign, um, and so I think just I think maybe exposing those inherent tensions and contradictions in human rights is maybe a good first step in in trying to have a more viable policy um, to have a better understanding of that for people coming at it from all angles. Yeah, and that brings
1: me to my last question is you know i'm putting a lot of pressure on you here but you talk about a credible human rights policy at the end and you know you share some reflections i'm wondering if you could share those in addition to what you just said um what what does that look like
0: yeah Yeah, I mean, I think so part of the credible human rights policy, I think we're kind of stuck in this no win situation um, about where human rights fits in a foreign policy agenda. Again, some of these dichotomies I talked about up front, if it's kind of corralled into our understanding of national interest, then people are quick to dismiss it as self-serving or kind of just nice window dressing for other interests. Um, But if we exclude it from our understanding of our national interests, we're setting up an inherent conflict between real interests and human rights. Uh, And so I think we have to think about human rights as part of a broader strategic um, vision for U.S. power in the world, um, for its purpose in the international system. I think we've seen over and over again including recently, that we military power alone is just not going to deal with the challenges of the international system that the United States and other actors face, right? That we talk a lot about hearts and minds and influence and soft power, and it's almost a cliche, uh, but we're constantly looking for mechanisms to to be able to secure that, right? To, to deploy that. And I think um, that human rights is a really important instrument in doing that, right? It's a, an honest self-reflective context-specific human rights policy is one of the best ways the United States and any other country has to cultivate goodwill Extend soft power in the international system um, and shape an environment, an international environment that is both humane um, and conducive to other national interests. And so I really don't think we can keep talking about human rights as a trade-off between morality and concrete objectives like national security. But we also, as we've just talked about, have to understand that there are going to be times when one issue surpasses another or there are limits about what we can do. About a particular human rights problem from the outside. Um, And I don't think that human rights is unique in this. But again, that universalist rhetoric, we really Mm -hmm. want it to be absolute. And we really want Mm -hmm. it to apply without trade offs or compromises. Um, And so I think we have to kind of grapple with that a bit more in these complexities if we want to have Viable human rights policies and productive relationships between activists and governments uh, and and government actors at the same time. And so, I think for me, you know, what is credible, it's self-reflective. I think, you know, I'm very sympathetic to this 1970s vision of kind of where is where is the United States as a as a citizen of the United States? Where is my country most directly implicated in human rights problems? What responsibility do we have? For those problems, that human rights aren't something that are just over there that need to be right. fixed by the United States. We are part, as uh, particularly the United States, as a, you know, a behemoth in the international system, we have an outsized impact on the structures um, and dynamics that empower um, and house human rights abuses. So what, where do we have the most direct impact and therefore responsibility uh, for abuses abroad. Right. So we have to stop thinking about human rights as something that just happens beyond the boundaries of the United States perpetrated by other governments that the U.S. has to come in and fix rather than thinking about it as a product of the intersection of, of local histories and particularities. Um, In the international system that the United States is part of and often shapes in really direct ways. So we have a responsibility for our own behaviors and policies that we most directly control. Um, And taking steps to address that will also then make advocacy on behalf of other egregious violations that the United States is not part of more credible in the long run, right? So if we're kind of dealing with our own stuff, it helps us to then have more um, conviction um, and m- more credibility when we speak out on abuses that aren't directly related to our own policies.
1: Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. It was a really interesting conversation. Um, it's a book I enjoyed and I learned much from, uh, so I highly recommend it. And for folks listening, you can get it through Cornell University Press. Uh, Vanessa? Thank you
0: so much. Yeah, thank you, Joe. It was really great to have a chance to talk about this. So I appreciate being here. Thanks.